Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Slam from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Greetings. We've got a pretty exciting show. Three film reviews coming up. We are talking Thor Ragnarok, the biggest film in cinemas this week. We are talking Blade Runner. Now, I know Blade Runner 2049 has been out for a little bit, so we are doing, fair warning, a spoiler-filled discussion of all the greatest things in the film, and so maybe some of its detractions too, for those who have seen Blade Runner already. But that'll not be till the very end, so we'll give you plenty of warning to tune out before then, if you'd still like to see it. But we promise that our discussion is a lot more interesting than Ryan Gosling wandering around the desert for a hour and a half. Okay, he was one of the best things about the film, but we will get to that. We are also talking about Detroit, the new Catherine Bigelow film. But first, um, I have to do a bit of a mea culpa. Now, we talk, we have recurring themes in the show, and one of those is the prominent director, Terrence Malick. <laughs> And he has, 10 years ago, I didn't see it because it was during my HSC, uh, but he had a film called The New World, which since had a three-hour version of it. Yeah, extended cut. When it came to cinemas, it was almost an hour shorter. But uh, yeah, there was a screening this past week of the long version. Yes, at the QT in Sydney, the Darlinghurst Film Club are doing monthly screenings on the last Thursday every month. So Chris and I went along to see it. I knew it was Chris's favorite film. Is that right, Chris? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, so I, I went along, it was a lot of fun, and i got to say, this parts of it just absolutely blew me away. It was meditative, it was powerful. There were lingering, beautiful shots of the American wilderness. One of the best performances I've seen from Bale, from Plummer, and from Colin Farrell, who was very young in this film. Yeah, and also incredible is Karyanka Kilcher, who plays Pocahontas, who is an amazing performance in this film, and her first time in a film, from what I believe, yeah. Wait, what am I hearing, Glenn? You might have liked a Terrence Malick movie? What is going on? Uh, okay, look, I'll be fair. There were parts where it maybe went on a little long. The Christian Bale character came in really late in proceedings when I thought the film was about to end. There were, there were many false endings throughout yeah, this. Yeah, it has a very strange approach to storytelling. I think to people that I'd recommend the film to, I'd usually suggest they watch the short version and seek out this three-hour version if they, they're sure they'd like to just see more of this movie because I think it's more disciplined. There's le- like there's more of the good stuff, but there's also more of the bad stuff. And it's you, you know if you're not sure that you're ready for this kind of filmmaking or this kind of movie, um, yeah, I think it's more disciplined and probably better overall. But I still did in no way regretted seeing the, this movie in the three-hour cut because it's always beautiful to me. It was beautiful to watch. And the shots there visiting parts of America for the first time were absolutely, absolutely incredible. So it is worth seeing. We will be back for the Sleepaway Camp. Is that the next Yeah, film? that's coming up at the end of November. Cult film with a, a big twist, as I know. Well, looking forward to that. But yeah. for the moment, we are talking in cinemas, uh, which is Detroit, the new film from Catherine Bigelow. It stars Star Wars' John Baega and Anthony Mackie, Will Poulter, and Game of Thrones' own Hannah Murray in a very different role from Gilly. Now, we saw this the other day. It's, in my view, a very powerful film. There are some... There are, it's in a three-act structure. One act, the second act, which is beyond outstandingly powerful. The third act, which I think was, again, the film's biggest attraction. But, yeah, this is... This, there's a lot of ups and downs in this film. Chris, what did you think? It is a strange one because of this three-act structure you mentioned. Essentially... The first act of this is this kind of scattershot depiction of a riot showing strands of characters all over the place. Then as it goes on, they start to converge and a story emerges out of this impressionist kind of painting of the 
the 60s Detroit. Riot. Yeah, yes, it was set in the six, in 67 during the Detroit riots. It was an yeah. incident at the LGS Hotel. We should say that this film, uh, the events in this film, as depicted in this film, have never been legally established, and that's the s- stated in the film. This was taken from eyewitness accounts and interviews and also some evidence from the court proceedings which took place some decades ago. Yeah, so the second act of this film recreates as Glenn was just saying, these events that have never probably been legally established what's happened. So as a result of that, there have been some liberties taken in the adaptation. Will Poulter, from what I've been reading, is playing a very big bad kind of character who's actually an amalgamation of, in reality, two or three characters and their actions. Um, He's, I must say, a pretty menacing villain. What the movie, it's a strange movie because what starts as a kind of social overview quickly turns into a really claustrophobic, sustained, basically suspense horror film with racist white cops as the demonic force. <laughs> you know, it played out like a slasher movie almost. It did. It felt yeah. constricting. And it, that, that entire second sequence, which is the bulk of the film, was very powerful. And Poulter, um, he's menacing at times, but when he tries to be funny or endearing to those around him, um, it's doubly scary. It's it is like, frightening. Yeah, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to smile in Terminator 2, kind of seeing beyond the facade of human emotion performance. It was really, really well done. It was interesting that he was, I believe, the first choice to play Pennywise in the recent It film. That might have made it just that bit better. Because he clearly shows he can scare the pants off you here. He can. And that sequence, they just draw it out and every moment is depicted. And there are some very, very emotional moments. Um, We talked about Hannah Murray. And she, as as much as many of the others, are the emotional crux of this film. Um, Mackie, he has a shorter role than some of the others, but he is particularly powerful. And I have to give credit to Algie Smith, who is also part of a subplot which uh, pervades the beginning end of the film regarding the Motown era and how some of the struggles of the time are reflected through that, but also how it impacted the music and the genre itself. And it was actually very powerful to hear his story and how that eventuated following the film. The biggest problem with this movie for me is that the second act is so powerful. It's, it's clearly the thing. The reason they wrote this script is because they want to tell the story about what happened in this hotel. It seems pretty clear. That's what the movie's all about. It's. It seems like it is a far. There's a far more minimal film in there that's built, you know, based straight around that the experiences of the people in the Algiers Hotel. But it feels to me like there's been this necessity to dress it up as um, as like an Oscar-y movie, so to provide the appropriate level of emotional context. They've tried to pad it out to tell us what happens to all the characters after those events, but none of that material is as inspired as the pure horror that Bigelow and Mark Bowl, the screenwriter, are able to evoke just from the, the Algiers Hotel, and I feel like there's a, a much punchier movie in there that shaves off that last third entirely. Yeah, the entire third act, in dramatic sense, is almost entirely superfluous in the sense that the epilogue at the end of the film addresses all the issues that were in the third act, but whereas the second act was well-paced and very emotive for that effect, yeah. this felt like it was it was almost a montage that just jumped from this yeah, to that yeah. to that in order to cover everything, and it has no way near the emotional impact of the second act. That's exactly right. Superfluous is a good way of putting it, because the depiction of the Algiers Hotel incident in this movie justifies filming that as opposed to just reading the Wikipedia page. And everything that came next about where what happened to everyone was, first of all, a kind of narrative that we already understand enough 
that it needs to be a really powerful depiction in order to make you feel something. Otherwise, it's just going through the kind of the motions of a foregone conclusion, which is the way that the end of this film felt. And none of that, it seemed, had yeah had been written or acted or staged with the emotional charge. It's all just very dutiful to give this movie, which is about a, a real um, tragic... I, I don't want to say... Um, anomaly, because that might sound like it's excusing. It's certainly not an anomaly. It's not an anomaly, but it's a, it, it's sort of like a grand metaphor for the broad, you know, what's happening in this hotel for the broader, um, broader issues of race relations and and law enforcement. Yeah, there's a reason they chose to focus on this event, and yeah. you, you'd even divide this film into four sections: the opening five minutes, which is a montage and animation, is very powerful in itself. And I feel if even if there had not been the third act, I was still encouraged to read more. This is the second act would have left you with a yearning yeah. to go out and learn more about this history and read these eyewitness accounts, and it certainly has for me. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I even though I found the movie really undisciplined in the way that it continued to explore, you know, what happens next when that wasn't necessary. I think yeah, there's enough power in that second act that I'd still recommend people seek this movie out. I absolutely agree. So Detroit is in cinemas on November 9. We'll be back talking about Thor Ragnarok. Stay tuned. And that was Led Zeppelin's legendary immigrant song, which gets an excellent playing in this film. It also has an excellent playing in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as a, one of the only excellent bits about that film. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about <laughs> other uh, Scandinavian outstanding inspired films. And this is Thor Ragnarok. It is the third in the series. It stars our very own Chris Hemsworth and Kate Blanchett. This is a very different film to as many Marvel films that have come before and certainly to the two Thor films that have preceded it. Uh, we saw this the other night. Farad, what did you think of Thor Ragnarok? First of all, Glenn, may I say what a wonderful, wonderful segue from Scandinavian films that you brought Thor in there. It was beautiful. It was such a nice touch. But yeah, I really love Thor. It was uh, genuinely funny. I think that's something that I don't say often about Marvel films because I feel that they try too hard to be funny. But I thought this was genuinely an out and out comedy. And I, I thought that was something that Marvel films were definitely building up towards, but they were not doing that too much. I think what a lot of Marvel films have been trying to do was they're trying to kind of mishmash comedic elements with kind of contextual, emotional impact and trying to give you this wholesome entertainment feel. But Taika Waititi said, no, I'm going to make a comedy. I'm going to make an out-and-out comedy, which I think is a pretty big risk going from a big, you know, studio version, kind of that world, because comedies have not done well. If you look at you know, studio, big studio, big money kind of films. Comedies are at the bottom of the barrel. They've definitely not inspired that kind of big money risks. So yeah. even though in that world, uh, YTD still played to the formula, Marvel formula, but still I think making an out-and-out comedy was still a huge risk and it pays off 
pretty well. I really enjoyed it. And more importantly, I think the Jack Kirby influences, which I must highlight because it is the 100th year of birth of Jack Kirby. And there was a lot of Kirby influences, especially in the planet Sakaar and how the color yeah. and everything comes Look, through. The, the world building is very Kirby, which is fantastic. The design of this movie is fantastic. Before I get into my takedown of this later on, <laughs> I just like to say, you know, talk about things I do like. And I have to agree with Virat there. The design in this is fantastic. The colors are, you know, completely ridiculous. There's some beautiful, real, actual sets that it's always lovely to see in a studio film. It makes a difference. There's an, a tracking shot that shows off, hey, we actually did build this really big set. And you can just feel how, how much better it feels than like a CG fly-through. That, oh, we're really moving a camera through things people built that real people are actually dancing around. I want to see more of that in my blockbusters, more great sets, more more design that has as much imagination and originality to it as what we see in this movie. So props to the art department of Thor Ragnarok. And I really enjoyed this. It was a comedy. It was very well designed. It was very well staged. And it was still it certainly so above many of the other Marvel films I've seen, and certainly the previous Thor film, The Dark World, which is one of the weaker of the entire Marvel series. However, I have to say, I like Takuichi a lot. I thought they'd go out of the box this, go out of left field, and they did in many respects. But at the same time, they felt the need to hit every recognizable beat and tick every box that has been in every single Marvel film to date. There is a villain who you didn't think you didn't know who she was. You have a actress playing the villain who is an amazing Hollywood figure who could do this and does do this in her sleep. Mm. You have random characters coming back from other movies who have very short cameos and get a truckload of money for it, but that's all they're really there for. There's a few great one-liners between the main characters, there's a largely superfluous opening sequence, and there is a big action destruction sequence at the end where people just punch each other and there's an ex machina moment. So I enjoyed this, but it still felt like... They're just treading the well-worn ground of every single Marvel film before this. I, I feel they definitely are. Um, a In respect to the kind of characters that are here for no reason, people just going through the plot motions and whether or not they really care that they're retreading old ground, how funny was Anthony Hopkins' brief little bit in this movie where he basically shows <laughs> up to play Poochie from Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie? You know, he just comes up and says, I have to go now. My planet needs me. I love you, Thor and Loki, by the way. Yeah. So Bye. We just want to say we have the first people to compare Sir Anthony Hopkins to Poochie. Let the record show. <laughs> I mean, he knows. He, I, he clearly doesn't care. And they know that we don't care. And he knows that we don't care. And he knows that we know that he doesn't care. So why is it in the movie? <laughs> why am I still here? It's, yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful meta kind of discussion or even a dialogue happening with Marvel <laughs> movies and the audiences where I think that's probably the biggest asset and the biggest drawback of Marvel films where you already know what you're going to in for when you watch a Marvel movie. So in a way, a lot of people are happy with that. I'm, I mean, I'm not to complain, but I think a lot of people just want that template to be done over and over again because yeah. that's what they want out of their superhero movies. Let's be honest. I mean, I'm not trying to say that this is a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying this is what audience expect. And the Marvel movies have been building up towards giving them more of that. But I still yeah. thought there was enough differentiation in this template this time around to actually merit a discussion and probably enjoyment. I think it's just hard to make something that's genuinely fresh in the Marvel template. I think it, it's... The, the thing with these movies is I always feel like I can see the gears going on behind the scenes, and I don't think that's just my admittedly existing prejudice against these movies. You know, this, <laughs> yeah. yeah, this feels to me like, all right, so we're doing a Marvel formula movie but this time it's going to be a comedy as opposed to someone having yeah. some really 
great comedic ideas that gave birth to this script. It, it all, you can always see the corporate demand going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I, I think I agree with you, but at the same time, I'm maybe a little more forgiving because I know one of these films comes out every six months and mm. I'm probably going to enjoy it, but they're starting to feel like the carry-on films of the 60s and 70s where you know what you're going to get, it's going to be a little slightly different, but there's yeah. I, I really just want them to try something completely different next oh, time. Oh, I, I do too. Look, Taika Waititi... Um, his own films have a really great spirit to them. Yes. They usually they they're funny, and you can see his style of humor yeah. bleeding through into this movie. Um, it, it still feels like humor that would be of a place in the yeah. other Marvel movies, but there's a bit more of an emphasis towards the ironic that you can mm-hmm. recognize from his films. <laughs> yeah, but. And I, I think he also brings a much greater visual wit in terms of the delivery of the punchlines yeah. and the way it's staged and directed. So I appreciated that. But his movies weren't just about the humor. They also tended to be about something. Yes. And this, the plot of this feels like such and so shallow, such just an excuse to like, let's get the, the set pieces going, which can be all right if it's executed with enough verve. But this is basically a movie about... You know, the triumph of the hammer, people are going to get hit, you're going to go see it. Whereas Taika Waititi's other movies have, you know, generally sweet messages that give you something to think about. Why can't we have something like that in a Marvel film? Which, which is weird, because when you look at the original Ragnarok story, this is the story which has the most amount of emotional stakes mm. out of any of the Thor kind of arcs. Because, you know, this is where Asgard is pretty much rewritten. It's like a reset button. So... And there's a family drama and, with a new family member. Yeah, you know, there's yeah, a lot but, of potential here. But like, there was none of that, like real stakes in the actual movie. But you'd realize that yeah, everyone's actually going to be safe in the end. You just know that. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was one of my major issues with it. And this is issue with each of the Marvel films, but more more pronounced here. And that all these figures can literally beat each other up and yes. throw them through walls yes. and through stadiums, and nothing happens. I just want to know if. Can something happen to Thor? And if so, how? Is he fallible? What are the stakes? It's, what are the stakes? W- what's my yeah. expectation? Pro- I, know he, I know a human can get shot. Where does he, 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 where does he stand? Yeah, I've he been, can get his heart broken. Right. Oh. I've been... Yeah, th- that's an interesting call because superhero movies, it is, since Superman Returns at least, have been trying to focus around that because the smarter people to tackle them have realized that a, a super-powered god character, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's no frame of reference for how many punches they can take before they die. So the smart move, I feel, to make a movie about this would be to downplay the action, take a less is more approach. But instead, they, we tend to just watch these endless CG brawls where punches are being traded, but it stops meaning anything because are they inflicting damage? Or, you know, how does the fight actually work? And this is why the first film was great, because you had a very different point of reference for it. And I appreciate, I haven't read too many of the comics, that there may be an internal logic to it, but most cinema goes, we don't know. We mm. want to know. Yeah. But also, if you're talking about people punching each other, the actual spin-off movie that I wanted to see was the gladiatorial contest with Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster. That's one movie that I would actually watch. I agree. That would, that would be great. But, you know, the way this movie works, that plot line, we we're basically, it sets up a pretty interesting... Yeah story arc there and then we're basically cheated out of the resolution to that because we need to keep moving along along the Marvel formula onto the next thing onto the next thing um, just before we close out on this film I, I I had kind of a broader critique of its existence which is it feels weird <laughs> why does it even exist yeah, why, why are we here yeah it just feels weird to me to see this very affected style of irony from a mega huge corporate mm-hmm. product like it's not good enough to do this kind of like yeah we know it's ridiculous when it's but you're going to pay money anyway stance went from a 
you know, a Disney blockbuster. That's the kind of thing I expect from the Sydney Fringe Festival. Yeah. If you've got to, if you're going to be ironic, you've got to be ironic on a huge and chaotic Looney Tunes level yeah. scale, you know, to justify that. Otherwise, it just kind of feels like an excuse for laziness. It's like capitalism being ironic about itself. It's exactly. like, you know, a, a big major corporate institution saying, ha ha, we, we know that you do this, but still we want to make you do it. Because my major complaint one was about Tessa Thompson's character, Valkyrie. I mean, they introduced this pretty complex, supposedly LGBTQI character, but then did nothing with it. You've seen it all before. Everything yeah. in this falls into a pattern. Um, I stopped finding this movie funny quite a bit of the way in because I felt like it was always going to the same kind of patterns for its jokes, which would generally be character says something to introduce them as a heroic archetype, then immediately afterwards something they say or do undermines them. It's just constant like un- like ironic pulling the rug out from under the characters. But yeah, at a certain point, I'm paying stop- to see the heroic iconography of Thor. Like you've got to treat that seriously to an extent or else nothing in the movie means anything anymore. And they tried that with the post-credit sequence too and it was an absolute non sequitur. Like I want to see yep. the this, the movie that led to it happening. And no, it was just exactly. we, we we get these little tidbits here and there, but it wasn't enough. But I do have to give a shout out to what is far and above the best scene in the film, which is a pantomime play at the very beginning that was involving great. Famous actors playing the main characters, which were, was abundantly hilarious, and you will just recognise the actors who are playing it. And some of them are Taika Waititi favourites, and oh, it's, it's it was worth seeing the film just yeah. for that. Yeah, he's snuck a lot of his favourite actors in in little bit parts all throughout this movie, actually. Lots yeah. of New Zealand accents. And himself. <laughs> yes. Too. Right. Yes. Uh, Thank you. So Thank you. That was Thor Ragnarok. It is in cinemas now. We saw it at the New Palace Cinemas at Central, and that was pretty nifty. I really liked it there. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty neat cinema. It's kind of like, um, look, picture Dendi Newtown, but with bigger screens and bigger seats. Yeah. So if that appeals to you, go to... And more Palace money. Central. And more money. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's nice there. And there's a few bars. Do check it out. It is right across the road. We'll be back shortly talking about Blade Runner. And that was the theme for Blade Runner, because Blade Runner 2049 is in cinemas now. It's been in cinemas for a few weeks, so we are having, as said, a spoiler-filled discussion. Uh, if you have seen the film, and in and again, I plan to see it again, uh, please do, please do see it. It is, in my view, flawed but still outstanding. I did enjoy the main plot elements, even and the implications thereof. However, the ending, and I feel a lot in this film, left a lot to be desired. I agree with that. Um, this movie really, really bit off more than it could chew. I think it, nonetheless, it's the kind of movie I want to encourage people to see because if I think if studios keep making films in this direction, something really great is going to come out of it. But it's not this movie. It's a step in the right direction for blockbusters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, at the same time, uh, what I think the biggest flaw of this movie was that it tried to answer every question that the original Blade Runner set up, which I think is not a direction that movies should go for in general. It's not about trying to then give you basic one-word answers to multiple-choice questions or something like that, which yeah, we live- felt like 
uh, really? Why did you just tell me that? Right. Now, we live in an age that's obsessed with explaining in pop culture, especially in, you know, like geeky genres like sci-fi. It's about like explain, explain, tell me, you know, fill in the yeah, backstory. Yeah. Where did perfect. the space jockey come from? What, did did, <laughs> oh, did oh, Darth no. Vader do races when he was nine years old? He probably you know? did. But to be perfectly fair, <laughs> the main answer, the main question in this film went unanswered. We still don't explicitly know whether Deckard is a replicant. And to that effect, we had an amazing discussion God, between him I really and Jared Leto. choice. Yes, I, I do too. But like, do we care? Like, wh- why should yeah, we care? I, I think like, we that, do that's, care. Not, that's not even that's not even something of an emotional question. That's more just a plot device, right? Some 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 questions are basically there to move the plot along. That's something which is an emotional center of a story, much like Twin Peaks. Who killed Laura Palmer? Well, should that question have ever been answered? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. So in that in that sense, you know, some questions are there as a catalyst to move the story along, and this was one of those questions. I don't think it ever should be answered. I think that question works better as a broader metaphor to create just the sense of paranoia of am I a replicant? Am I not? What's the difference anymore? Uh-huh. Which is, seems to be the broader point that Blade Runner is trying to make about what is human. And that was the excellent point that led to the plot of this film. There is a baby. Uh, it is Deckard's and another and a replicant and the implications of this and from the original question are quite profound was it two uh, is it a baby of two replicants is it a replicant and a human baby and the implications of this are brilliant but i feel the conclusion to that effect was not great it was such a coincidence that the person who was the apparently the daughter just happened just happened to be the person he went to speak to in the course of his investigation earlier in the yeah film. it's too neat that it, it i think this movie as i said before bites off way more than it can chew in terms of plot lines so in order to stop it from being just a huge unwieldy mess there are a lot of coincidences to try and streamline all this this wildly veering um, detective narrative mm-hmm. and some of them do definitely stretch believability at the same time I, I kind of got sick of Ryan Gosling trying to play detective for like hour and a half and then be like oh, well you know I know you can do broody well I know you do mopey face pretty well but give me more than that <laughs> <laughs> but can you honestly have cast someone better he has, he has this look. persona yeah. which you could easily mistake for being a computer an AI he's a real human being and a real hero yes which works in this film which <laughs> right. works really well <laughs> the thing about this film is okay I, I, I now I'm going to do my amateur screenwriter I, here's how I would have done the movie instead, if if we'll allow it. Sure. I think, yeah, we, sure. we'll, we'll allow it. Okay, there we go. cool. <laughs> Consensus approved. All right. So getting into uh, heavier spoiler territory now. The most interesting, um, you know, the interesting hook of this movie is K meets Deckard. That's what they've pushed in the uh-huh. trailers. But yeah. it doesn't happen until the third act. However, by the third act, it's built up a lot of significance, which is, is Deckard K's father? You know, the, do they have this emotional bond between them which the movie then doesn't ex- doesn't explore at all the two are barely together after that and all they really do apart from exchanging a few words is uh, engage in an action scene which goes nowhere and we all know isn't going to involve any of them sustaining any major injuries so it's just padding time what i think that they should have done in this movie instead is introduced Deckard very early on, made the relationship between him and Deckard centered to the film, cut out subplots like uh, Ryan Gosling's virtual girlfriend, and that because that even though that was great, to an, it was, well I wouldn't say great it was good that was used to explore the idea of is uh, kind of the artificial love between a replicant and another artificial person like is that real is it real love is it programming they could have explored the same thing with but you know streamlining the narrative between Kay and Deckard, Kay feels that Deckard's his father. Is is this emotion real? 
and then but there'd be more more dramatic tension there because Deckard would be questioning that, Kay would be feeling it, well, he'd know intellectually it's not true. There's just a way more interesting movie in these ideas that I didn't see come out in the film. Yeah, Harrison Ford was terribly underutilized, and that punch scene felt like it belonged to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Um, I will defend Anna de Armas. Yeah, it, it, was, it was terrible. I will defend Anna de Armas, though. She had one of the best roles in the film, and they've mooted sequels, and I'd be very curious if she came back in with the same character, but in an original right. form before she got to know him, and yeah. you know, having to do all that all over again to build that relationship, I find that very fascinating. Also, talking about virtual girlfriends, uh, I thought the movie that you know inspired all her. that was her. Yes, yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking. I'm like, that's a movie that does that kind Kind of uh, yeah, there interaction so well. Shades of her. It, it just made me think that this movie had a chance to go in a more original direction and yes. squandered it because it wanted to be five different movies. Yeah, it, it didn't need yeah. to. It, I don't feel that the depth that any of these themes were explored to required a nearly three-hour movie. But once again, uh, the world building was fantastic. So I think in that Visually, kind of visual yeah. sort of world building is... Yeah, phenomenal. that was fantastic. If Art Roger, direction was if great. If Roger Deakins does not win an Oscar for this, it's been, what, 13 already nominations, uh, it will be a crime. It will be appalling. This was visually absolutely phenomenal. This is the type of film that will be played on TV screens and hardware stores on silent till the end of time because it is so yeah. visually beautiful. Yeah. He should just be under in a redo and he'll win an Oscar. It tries to expand the visual palette from just the cities in, in the original Blade Runner to deserts and snow and junkyards. and Yeah, it, it does a good job in that. And so... For the design alone, I think it's worth seeing on a big screen. It is worth seeing on a big screen. It is in cinemas now, as is Thor Ragnarok, and Detroit will be in cinemas on November 9. Again, the Broadsheet and Darlinghurst Film Club will be on the last Thursday of the month. We'll be back next week uh, rec- live from the British Film Festival at Pal Cinemas with Adele Drover talking about some of the best films at a part of the festival. We've already seen Mary Shelley, which I'm very excited to speak about. We'll also be talking about Tulip Fever. We'll be putting on our best British accents. Yes, our best, our best British accents, our best British brogues. Uh, another couple of festivals that are happening right now. The Jewish International Film Festival is currently underway. The Japanese Film Festival 2 is currently having a series of retro screenings, which are very worth checking out. The, actual, the proper festival yep, will Seijin, start on Seijin, November 16th. Yes, Seijin Suzuki Retrospective at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, it's always worth seeking out the AGNSW screenings. They're fantastic. And this guy's a great director. So we'll be back next week at the British Film Festival. Enjoy movies. Have a wonderful night. Good night. Good night. Good night.